This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. TBR is Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Thursday, January 31st. Hello, Alice. How are you? Um, I have not left my apartment in three days. How about you? That is amazing. I have left my house under duress, and it has been incredibly unpleasant because we are both in the middle of the polar vortex, and it has been so cold. Yeah, Kim is in Minnesota. I'm in Chicago. So we both had wind chills of, I think it got to like negative 50. Yeah. Yep. It was negative 50 something in the Twin Cities. It actually got so bad that the power company that um, serves natural gas to most of like the Twin Cities, greater metro area, um, was asking people to turn their thermostats down to 63 degrees um, because it, it was putting too much strain on the system and they were trying to maintain service and they couldn't because of how much work it was taking. Like that to me is almost like, that feels like an apocalyptic kind of thing to be like, don't turn your heat on anymore, guys. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Also 65 or sorry, 63. That's that's a little chilly. It is not super warm. Luckily we live in a townhouse. So like we're contained on both sides by other houses. So our house never, it didn't seem to get that cold when we had it down a little bit, but my sister worked at home today and she said that eventually she had to turn the heat back up because her hands were getting stiff from the, the cold. So it's, it's been not great, but you did not have to work, which is awesome. Get to stay at home. Yeah. My, uh, my job closed. They, uh, I think on Monday they were like, Hey, we're not going to be open on Wednesday because it's very dangerous outside. And then, uh, on, I think on Wednesday they were like, uh, no. And, uh, Thursday too, we're <laughs> just going to be shut down. <laughs> so, um, I was extremely grateful for that because I take the bus, um, to work and it's oh, like yeah. right near the lake. And I didn't want to be on public transit for that. So no, that's yeah. awful. But anyway. Yeah, it feels like everything in Minnesota has been schools have been closed most of the week because we had snow on Monday and then it was very cold or Monday into Tuesday, I think. And yeah, it's just it's been a it's been a mess and everybody's all discombobulated. So great times. Anyway. I um I yes. wanted to do some quick follow up from a previous episode, meaning I don't even know how long ago, but <laughs> I recommended American Fire uh by what is her first name? Monica Hessa. And um, I hadn't read the whole thing and I like cannonballed through it the last two days when I was um, stuck inside. It's so good. It's like 
immersive and really good at like, I think it's a really good example of, you know, sort of like the narrative nonfiction of like, you kind of feel like you're reading like a fictional story because of the way she sets it up. And it's just, I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's great. That's, I just wanted to like tell people again to read American Fire. (laughs) Excellent. That's awesome. Um, I have a little bit of follow-up too, which is actually just passing on some other book title recommendations that I got from uh, folks who are on the Book Riot Insider Slack channel. There's a nonfiction channel in there. And so after last week, we were talking about how we couldn't come up with any Arctic books that weren't uh, about disasters. Um, They came up with a few titles that people had either been curious about and asking if others had heard it or whatever. So I'm just going to share those. I don't know anything about them. They were just um, kind of suggestions or questions from the Slack. Uh, So the first one is called uh, An African in Greenland by Tete Michael Kopomesi, which came out in 1981, actually. Uh, And it's about the author's upbringing in Togo, his encounter as as a teen with a book about Greenland, and then his determination to move there and become a hunter in Greenland. Um, So that one sounds (laughs) super interesting. Um, Another one is Ice Diaries, an Antarctic memoir by Jean McNeil. And I think she was, uh, I didn't write a summary down for this one, but I think she was like a photographer or scientist going into the Antarctic writing about that. So it's more of a science book. And the third one someone mentioned was called A Wilder Time, Notes from a Geologist at the Edge of Greenland by William E. Glassley, which is, I think, another science Arctic book. So I think that if we had wanted Arctic books that weren't about disasters, we should have gone more towards science than explorations, because I do not think there's any Arctic exploration that has not ended in some type of calamity or another, right? This is true. Even on the X-Files, when Scully, in the X-Files movie, Scully has, she gets kidnapped, (laughs) she's taken to Antarctica, and she has this, like, alien virus, and Mulder has to go and rescue her, and they have a terrible time. So, um, yeah, (laughs) totally agree. Oh, this has already gone off the rails. I'm so glad. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So before we get into new books, I'm going to go do our first sponsor. Uh, So this week's first sponsor is At the Wolf's Table by Rosella Posterino from Flatiron Books. Uh, And this is a historical book, an internationally best-selling novel based, or excuse me, At the Wolf's Table is an internationally best-selling novel based on the untold true story of women conscripted to be Hitler's food tasters. The setting is Germany in 1943. Um, The main character, Rosa, um, her parents are gone and her husband is fighting in World War II. Impoverished and alone, she decides to leave war-torn Berlin for the countryside. One morning, the SS come and say she's been conscripted to be one of Hitler's tasters. Each day, she and nine women will go to his headquarters to eat his meals before he does. And as secrets and resentments grow, this unlikely sisterhood reaches a dramatic climax. Um, So this is a best-selling novel that is based on real-life women, uh, which is gripping, powerful, and perfect for fans of historical fiction. So that is At the Wolf's Table by Rosella Posterino from Flatiron Books. All right. And so with that, we're going to hop into new books for this week, um, which is fun because February, the first part of February, seems like there's a ton of really interesting titles coming out. So um, we've both got some ones to talk about. And I've been talking a while, so I'm going to let you go first, Alice. Oh, exciting. Um, Sure. So my first book is um, already out. It is called Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style by Benjamin Dreyer. It came out January 29th from Random House. So Benjamin Dreyer is the, um, I think he's the 
chief copy editor, whatever official title for Random House, and he has been for a very long time. Um, His Twitter account is very funny. So this book offers lessons on punctuation from the underloved semicolon to the enigmatic end dash, the rules and non-rules of grammar, including why it's okay to begin a sentence with and or but and to confidently split an infinitive. He talks about the, um, you know, that classic, you like when people want an example of why it's okay, they talk about Star Trek's to boldly go because you don't want to say mm-hmm. to go because it sounds dumb. Um, and that's part of his method is he's like, look, if it sounds awkward, I don't care if you're saying it's correct, you shouldn't use it, which I really appreciate having someone, you know, quote unquote official, um, say this kind of thing. Cause I'm, I'm very on board. He also has these, uh, sort of tests for yourself as a writer. One of which is to, um, he calls them, uh, wan intensifiers and throat clears, where he's like, try not to, for a week, try not to use, um, words like very, rather, of course, and actually. And I want to try to put this in practice, but I'm really scared to. So, uh, <laughs> we'll see. So essentially, uh, Oh, yes. He, he ends this with um, only godless savages issue the series comma. He does this great little section. <laughs> of, uh, the series comma is so important. And he kind of also tells uh, why certain examples that people use aren't actually good examples for why it's important, but it still is very important. Um, it's split up into kind of, you know, like not bullet points, but like numbered lists and that kind of thing. Um, I think it's really funny. And even though it's, you know, a, a grammar guide, it's still really entertaining and um, helpful for solidifying some rules, you know, like in case you haven't done a brush up in a while. So, and again, and he says in it, he's like, if you, uh, even everyone writes, like even if you're writing an email, you know, and you want to like make sure that you're doing things in the way that is the sort of the clearest and um, not necessarily most concise, but, you know, most sort of just getting your point across. So, um, uh, again, that is Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style by Benjamin Dreyer, and it is out now. That sounds so excellent. I love – I do – I like grammar guides just to, like, poke through them and see what people are. And it's nice that he's not super um, strict and, and one way is right and one way is wrong because I, I do think, like – I come from journalism where, like, people are very much AP style is the way and the only way, but I don't know that that is – serving readers the best necessarily. So that sounds really good. Excellent. Um, So my first pick is called No Beast So Fierce, the terrifying true story of the Chapamwat tiger, the deadliest animal in history by Dane Hucklebridge. And so this is a story about a royal Bengal tiger who killed 436 people in Northern India and Nepal between 1900 and 1907. Um, And what was interesting about this tiger is that it was a female tiger and she was shot by a poacher in the mouth. And so because she was injured, she couldn't, um, couldn't do the things that tigers normally do. And so as a result, she turned to killing humans. And that's like super rare and extremely terrifying because tigers don't normally do that. And so during the time that she was active, she killed more than 400 people. Um, And so then the story goes on to talk about a guy named Jim Corbett, who was a um, a then unknown railroad employee of humble origins who had grown up hunting game throughout the hills. And so people in these communities turned to him to try and stop this tiger from killing more people in their villages and communities. 
Um, and so the book is about this tiger and what happened to her, but then also about this hunter who is trying to stop her. Um, so it's a book. There's also a lot in the book about colonialism, about conservationism, about environmental issues and that kind of stuff. Um, and I haven't gotten very far in this one yet, but so far I really like it. The author has a really um, like clear and exciting style. Um, but one thing I noticed that I am I'm hoping continues throughout the book is that the author has not like inserted himself in the narrative really at all, um, which I don't know. I, like, I just feel like I'm so used to reading books where the author will put themselves in or give a little bit about their reporting or how they found the story or how the story affects them in some way that it's kind of um, it's been kind of refreshing to like not have come across that at all in the part that I've read so far. So um, I'm really enjoying it. It's going to be, I think, a good just like adventure kind of story. Um, so that is No Beast So Fierce by Dane Hucklebridge. That sounds super good. Um, did you see the movie The Ghost in the Darkness? Mm-mm, no. Um, that's that movie with Michael Douglas and another man whose name I've forgotten. Maybe Val Kilmer. But anyway, um, it's about these hunters who go to Africa to hunt the um, Savo lions who were also killing people like in like a lot of people mm. um who were working on i think a railroad don't quote me on that but um they were like coming to the you know in like camp at night and just like like taking people from their tents and stuff and so they were called the ghosts of darkness because that's you know how they referred to these lions and eventually they caught them and there were like male lions who didn't have manes which was weird huh. and then there was something about like their teeth being like really bad basically people have done studies the actual skins of them are at the field museum in chicago um and so they've like studied their i guess they probably have the skeleton i don't know but they've studied it and like looked into why <laughs> this was happening so I'm, I'm interested whether this book um that you're talking about no be so fierce is also kind of talking about like getting into specifically why like do they mm-hmm. why yeah, I haven't gotten that far yet, so I don't know for sure, but I will finish it and report back in a future episode. Fantastic. Um, my other new release for this week is Underground, A Human History of the Worlds Beneath Our Feet by Will Hunt. It came out January 29th from Spiegel and Grau. So Will Hunt has been interested in kind of what is underneath our feet um, for since he was, I think, like a teenager. He uh, grew up um don't remember i think it's rhode island and he finds this like abandoned tunnel near his um home and he goes into it and he spends a lot of time in there and he just is like this is so cool because you know it used to be this other thing and now it's like no one knows about it so he took that to when he moved to new york he got involved in like this community of people who would like go into sewers and go into subway lines and stuff which is extremely dangerous um which he talks about but he basically they take him to all of these places that very very few people know about and he writes about them um it sounds again extremely dangerous but also fascinating and he talks about how humans since like prehistoric times right have been going into caves we have all of this record of like prehistoric humans and neanderthals even leaving like either cave art or burying their dead um in these like recesses of caves so it's like but we also have this um, instinctive fear of caves and the dark. So he kind of puts those things together and he talks about like how we have this fear, but we have this pull at the same time and what that maybe means. Um, I have always been extremely fascinated by, you know, like caves and secret places and all this stuff. Not that that is unusual, but um, what really stood out to me about the book though, while I was looking through it is that um, he, in a way he is able to do this because he's a guy. 
You know what I mean? Like a lot of things he's talking about. He's like, I would wander New York at 2 a.m. And I was like, yeah, no. uh, as a woman, you can't. You just can't. I mean, you can, but you're putting yourself into even more danger than he is by like a significant amount. Um, so in a way, I was I was very jealous that he was able to even think about doing this um, without a lot of fear for his own safety. But it's also because he wrote this book, you're able to, you know, kind of go with him in some sense. So um, I thought it was very fascinating. Again, it is Underground, A Human History of the Worlds Beneath Our Feet by Will Hunt. That sounds so interesting. And yeah, you're right. I wouldn't have thought necessarily about like what him being a man allows him to do in terms of like exploring and reporting this story. But I think you're right. Like that's a really interesting aspect of it, both to sort of like be able to go along on a thing that maybe wouldn't be be comfortable or safe to do. Yeah, interesting. Um, so my second book or my last book for new books this week is one that I haven't gotten to read at all, um, but I am very confident is excellent and I'm excited to read it when I can get my hands on a copy. And it's called The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Weijung Wang. Um, and this is the most recent winner, um, or most recently published winner of the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. So Grey Wolf Press is a Minnesota press. They're a small um, independent press nonprofit, I think. Um, and they have great nonfiction that they do. Um, and they give out this nonfiction prize every year. Um, and a couple, several of my favorite books are actually previous winners of the prize. Um, the Empathy Exam is by Leslie Jameson, which is a great collection of essays about um, pain and empathy. Um, it is a previous winner. And then another book called Leaving Orbit by Margaret Lazarus Dean, which is a book about the end of the U.S. shuttle program on the United States. Um, both of those are previous winners and both books that I really loved. So I'm excited about this one. Uh, and so this book is a collection of autobiographical essays about what it is like to struggle with mental illness and chronic illness. Um, so the author, Esme Wei, uh, is a former lab researcher at Stanford. Um, and so she brings in kind of her experience as a, a researcher and also her personal narrative about living with mental illness and kind of brings those two things together. Um, and the book, the essays kind of track her first diagnosis with a schizoaffective disorder. And then they go on to look at um, things about like labeling people with mental illnesses, how uh, mental illnesses like this are diagnosed, um, how schizophrenia manifests in different people. Um, and it's a book that dispels misconceptions and provides insight into a condition that has long been misunderstood. Um, and I'm going to link to it too. There's a really great excerpt in BuzzFeed um, that is titled, I've been committed to a psych ward three times and it never helped. Um, and so she writes about, um, it's an excerpt or an essay from the book, and she writes about the three different times she's been committed to a psychiatric ward and what that was like for her and why that experience was not helpful and like what the problems were for it for her and why um, it may not be the best fit for a lot of people who are struggling with a uh, schizophrenic disorder like she is. So um, I haven't gotten to read any of this except for that BuzzFeed article, but I, I think it's going to be really great. It sounds so interesting. And um, anything that gets the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize is always a book that I want to pick up because I think it's a great, they do a great job picking interesting and um, kind of challenging, but not too complicated nonfiction to really award with that. So uh, this book is called The Collected Schizophrenia by Esme Weijung Wang. When you were talking about that, I was like, what did I just watch that was saying that this girl was probably um, schizophrenic? And I finally realized it was when I was in a hotel for the la last weekend for the readathon 24 and 48, I watched an 
hour and a half long, maybe two hours long, uh, documentary about the Slender Man stabbings. And uh, the girl, the main girl who was kind of instigating it, um, or so it seems, uh, has been basically diagnosed as schizophrenic or like early onset schizophrenia. And um, Hmm. because she said like, you know, she would hear voices and like all of this stuff. And um, I thought it was really interesting. So yeah, that book sounds great. Um, Okay, it is time for our second sponsor of the episode, which is I Am Yours, a shared memoir by Rima Zaman from Amberjack Publishing. To speak is a revolution. I Am Yours tells of Rima's unwavering fight to free her voice from those who have sought to silence her. Moving from Bangladesh to Thailand, New York, and Oregon, it explores her struggles with racism, misogyny, abuse, and anorexia in incisive poetic prose. I Am Yours is the first English-language memoir by a woman from Bangladesh that so powerfully explores the intersection of personal and political for the sake of creating a world where all voices are welcome and respected, because we're in this together. Thank you for sponsoring I Am Yours, a shared memoir. Sounds so good. Awesome. All right. So uh, since we are in February now, I guess we're not technically in February when we're recording, but we will be in February by the time you get to listen to this because calendars. Um, We decided uh, our two episodes in February are going to focus on books related to Black History Month. So uh, this week, we're going to focus specifically on some books that get at the history part of Black History Month, um, books that look at the Black experience historically in some different ways. Um, So we're going to try to pull some more serious nonfiction, some memoirs and stuff to kind of books if you're interested in reading more in honor of Black History Month. So um, the first book that I want to talk about is one of my absolute favorites that I recommend a lot because it is such a good book that really helped reframe a lot of what I think and understand just about like how contemporary racism and segregation and stuff works in our country. And that is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, And so this book is about the Great Migration. So between 1915 and 1970, almost 6 million African Americans migrated from the South to escape Jim Crow and other racist things happening down there. Um, And that migration of uh, Black Americans from the South into Northern cities just completely changed the face of the United States because there was nothing like it before. Um, and so to um, write the book, Isabel Wilkerson interviewed more than thousand, more than 1,000 people. She looked at a ton of data and records about how people were moving across the United States and then used that to write a definitive account of these journeys. Um, and what's really so remarkable about this book is that she takes this huge story with millions of people and she decides to focus on just three individuals and three journeys. So one person who goes from Mississippi to Chicago, another who goes from Florida to Harlem, and then a third guy who goes from Louisiana to California. Um, and he uses, and she uses their specific stories to give kind of a, a narrative or a, um, a structure to this story and then explain how those different migrations changed cities and cultures across the United States. Um, and it's just, it's, I just love it because it is such this huge range and breadth in the stories that she tells. Um, and it's a story that like the idea of the great vibration and like how it changed the way American cities look is in the background of just like every other thing we talk about um, when we talk about or read about race and segregation in the United States, like the design of cities, the traditions and trends of immigrant communities in every city, um, and even the idea of racial racial separation in cities are all traced back to 
this great migration when African-Americans fled from the South and came North. And so um, I remember reading this book and it just, it felt like I started to connect it with almost everything else I was reading, that there were all of these other ripple effects out from the great migration that affect all of the contemporary stuff we're talking about. So I think it's a really great, um, just like overview of a book that's also readable and interesting and well done. So um, it's one of one of my favorites I recommend it all the time. And that is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Didn't that win like a bunch of prizes? It did, yeah. Um, I don't remember if it was the Pulitzer or the National Book Award. I'm going to Google it while you're talking. Yeah, it. Um, I just remember it coming out and it was like a huge deal. Um, and I tried reading it and it was a little too, at the time, I was very, very anti um, what I called like fiction nonfiction. Like if you tried to actually mm-hmm. sort of, you know, paint a picture using your words, um, which I think I've gotten more into now, but I do very much like I watched an interview with her and she was amazing. And like, she's obviously like put in so much work to this book. So I, uh, yeah, kind of, I need to pick that up. Yeah. I think it's big award was the national book critics circle award in 2011, but it was also among the best books of publishers weekly and the New York times, um, and ALA notable book in 2011. So it didn't win like the Pulitzer or anything, but national book critics circle is a pretty big deal. That's pretty cool. Um, my first pick for our black history month, uh, segment part one is the portable 19th century African-American women writers. Uh, Oh, I thought there was going to be a guide at the end of that, but there's not. It's just the portable 19th century African-American women writers. So this is edited by Hollis Robbins and Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, It's an awesome collection. It's put out by Penguin Classics, and it's arranged into sections of um, memoir, poetry, and essays on feminism and education. Uh, It comprises work from 52 African-American women writers of the 19th century, which is amazing. Um, it's, mm-hmm. you know, their their work has definitely been um, buried for a long time. And so for Hollis Robbins and Henry Louis Gates Jr. to, you know, unearth it and, and put it all in one very convenient location, um, that's amazing work. Um, it came out a few years ago. I'm really glad it exists. Um, these essays deal with... Um, Social movements, including abolition, women's suffrage, temperance, and civil rights. But the central theme is the intellect and personal ambition of African-American women. Um, I will say it's not something that you want to just sort of sit and read through. You know, it's not like a thing to just check off your TBR list. Um, but it's extremely good for, you know, being like, um, what does someone, you know, from the 19th century with this perspective have to say on this subject and like picking it up and like finding an essay on that since it is arranged in a very sort of clear way. Um, it's a really awesome resource to have. Again, that is the portable 19th century African-American women writers. That's awesome. Do you know, do you have it with you? Like how big is it? Like the portable makes me wonder, like, is it a giant book or is it pretty like, I do have it with me right here. Thank you for asking Kim. Um, (laughs) it is, it's about 600 pages, but I would say it's like a five by seven, um, book. Yeah. So I can hold it in one hand and like my thumb is like covering all the pages. It's fine. It is quite quite portable. Cool. That's awesome. That's a really good resource. Yes. It is portable. That's a great resource. Good suggestion. Um, So I'm going to talk about, I guess, two memoirs that I think are um, related to each other and both kind of get at similar topics, but coming at them from slightly different angles. Um, 
Yeah. So the first, the, the books are The Grace of Silence by Michelle Norris and Negroland by Margot Jefferson. Uh, and they are both two memoirs by African-American women, uh, specifically about middle-class or wealthy Black families and their experiences living in the Midwest in like the 1940s, 50s, 60s kind of era. Um so The Grace of Silence was published in 2011. Uh, Michelle Norris is a co-host of All Things Considered on NPR. I think she maybe is not a co-host anymore. I, I forgot to check that. Um, but as she uh, she started, as when Barack Obama was elected president, she started, um, this conversation about race was starting to happen more in the United States. And so she started having more conversations with her own family and discovered a couple of really significant um, secrets that they had been kept. Um, the first one is that her father was shot by a Birmingham police officer at one point and that her maternal grandmother worked as a traveling Aunt Jemima in the Midwest. So she actually, for a job for a long time, would dress up as Aunt Jemima, like the syrup um mascot, I guess, and would travel to um, small communities in the Midwest demonstrating how to use Aunt Jemima pancake mix. Um, and there's a huge and long and complicated history, racial history with that. Um, uh, mascot isn't the right word, but with Aunt Jemima as a, a logo or a representative for this brand. Um, and so she writes about kind of learning that and what that was like. Um, so book is about kind of her discovery of those secrets in her family's past. Um, her family's move from the South to uh, a suburb or to um, Minneapolis. And then um, the kind of desegregating of their neighborhood that happened after their family moved in. They were the first black family to move into their neighborhood in South Minneapolis. And she writes about how a bunch of the other white families in that community actually sold their houses and moved because they couldn't stand the idea of having um, African-Americans in their community. Um, and so it's about that and growing up as a relatively well-to-do um, Black family in Minnesota. Um, and I'm probably like halfway through this one, and I it's really good. She's very, she's very readable. It's very... Um, Interesting stories. I guess I'm particularly interested because it's set in Minnesota and I love Minnesota history books because um, that's where I'm from. Um, but just lots of things that I, I didn't know about or didn't. Um, a, a different piece of Minnesota history. And so I've, I've been really enjoying it. Um, and the second memoir that is, I think, related and it, it comes at a similar topic is Negro Land by Mar Margot Jefferson, which was published in 2016. Um, and Margot Jefferson was born in 1947 to an upper crust black family in Chicago. Um, and so her father was the head of pediatrics at a hospital. Her mother was a socialite. And so this book is a peek into their insular community um, while also tracing the history of wealthy black Americans in the United States. Um, many people, uh, many members of the, this wealthy black community started as free blacks in the South. And then they built this network of sororities, fraternities, networks, and clubs to try and um, help themselves succeed in the United States. Um, so she raised a lot about like how being part of this upper crust group meant that you had to be sort of perfect without be without any flaws, but also they couldn't be too good because then that would threaten their relationships with their kind of white neighbors and white community. Um, and that the motto of living within this particular um, small at black community, uh, their motto was achievement and vulnerability comportment. Um, and I started reading this one, and I can tell that it's really good, but I have just not been in the mood for um, books that don't, like, move along at a quick pace. And so anything that has, like, too much um, meandering or um, kind of over-discussion, like, I just I – just personally haven't had the patience for lately. And so I, d I, I didn't get into this one as much as I had hoped to, even though I can tell that it's really 
really good. Um, Margot Jefferson is a Pulitzer Prize winning critic. And so she, in the book, does a lot of meditating on like the, the purpose of memoir and criticism and all those things. And I just, um, I haven't quite been able to get into it, but I, I really can tell that it's great. And so it's going back on the shelf for a time when my, I have the mental space for it. But um, I wanted to talk about both of them because I think they are both part of the same. They're similar stories about a time and a type of community um, that's part of African-American history in the United States that we don't talk as much about or it's not as not as common, I guess. So that was The Grace of Silence by Michelle Norris and Negro Land by Margot Jefferson, both awesome memoirs. Dang. Yeah, I have um, Negro Land. I haven't read it yet, but The Grace of Silence sounds so good. Yeah, I do think um, she wrote it in 2011 and I feel like I haven't quite gotten to it, but I'm, I've, I think that the conversation about race that she wrote the book kind of in response to has really changed in the last couple of years. And so I'm wondering if maybe later in the book, it's going to feel a little dated. I'm not sure. Um, since it is kind of a historical memoir, maybe that it won't have a problem with that, but I just, things have just changed so drastically. I sometimes wonder, I wondered as I was getting into it, if her, her reason for writing the book maybe affects how it will be read, if that makes any yeah. sense. Well, definitely the national discourse has, um, yeah. changed for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, my last pick for this section is To Keep the Waters Troubled, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Linda O. McMurray. Um, So Ida B. Wells' career began amidst uh, controversy when she sued a Tennessee railroad company for ousting her from a first-class car. So this got her really into um, this life filled with, you know, journalism and activism. Um, She uh, I guess, operated out of Chicago. Um, you can see her house in Bronzeville, which is like our historic black uh, neighborhood. You cannot tour it, which is a giant bummer, but you can go and then there's like a plaque outside and it's like, this is where Ida B. Wells lived. Um, so she's primarily known for in the 1890s, she focused um, most of her efforts on an anti-lynching campaign. Lynching was a huge problem, particularly in the the American South. So she moved from the American South originally, moved up to Chicago. She exposed this as as the sort of like widespread form of racial terrorism. Um, She ended up going on a lecture tour and arranged legal representation for black prisoners. She hired investigators, founded anti-lynching leagues, sought recourse from Congress. Um, She was also an equally forceful advocate for women's rights, Um, but she ended up parting from, uh, at the time, I believe it was the National Women's Party, which was the more radical wing that organized the 1913 march um, because they uh, sort of subordinated racial justice to their cause, which they did because that in that same 1913 march, um, that was when she wanted to march with Illinois, her, where the, state, the state she lived in. And Alice Paul, the leader of the National Women's Party, said no she would have to march with the other black women, which I believe was even at the back of the parade. I could be wrong, but like, that's what's in my brain about it, which is horrifying (laughs) on so many levels. And, you know, Ida B. Wells said, uh, no, and marched with Illinois anyway. So Alice Paul was doing this, you know, it's part of that whole thing of like, she was like, well, I don't want to anger, you know, women from like these other states and we want to keep the party together. And it's just this, you know, discourse we Mm -hmm. hear now, um, just in a different form for most of the time. So basically she's this um, extremely sort of powerful, fascinating woman who is, uh, has definitely started to be talked about more than she was um, definitely in the mid 
20th century, but um, it's a little hard to find biographies of her sometimes, which I was surprised by. Um, but this one, it's really readable and uh, really good. Again, it is To Keep the Waters Troubled, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Linda O. McMurray. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, I remember Ida B. Wells came up a little bit in the book I read about the women's um, ratification of the amendment in Tennessee. Um, they, they told the story about her not wanting to march in the back of a parade and... Um, she sounds like a pretty badass lady. So cool. Um, so yeah, so those are some picks from us for some more historical uh, nonfiction. It looks like they were all mostly by women. So that's pretty cool also, I think. Um, and then uh, next podcast, we're going to try to do some more contemporary um, contemporary writers that you might read for Black History Month. So I'm excited about that as well. Um, so now shifting gears into segment three, um, I've been sort of feeling overwhelmed by like books and just like how many there are to read and all of that. So we thought we would maybe take, this is my suggestion, that we take a little detour from uh, books specifically and talk a little bit about some other nonfiction or true story podcasts that we like to listen to, which I always enjoy for a break or something a little bit different if you're not in the mood to read. Um, so we both have a couple of, of nonfiction podcast that we enjoy and are going to recommend and talk about. So um, I will uh, I will let you go first, Alice. Yeah. So I am currently pretty obsessed uh, with this podcast that um, my wonderful friend Andrea recommended. It's called Broken Hearts, spelled H-A-R-T-S. Um, it's run by Glamour. Uh, two of their reporters have kind of been investigating it for months. Um, so it's the story, you might have heard about it in the news, um, but then it kind of died off. Recently, someone published a really in-depth article about it that was fantastic. And I'm sorry, I don't have the source for it right now. Um, we'll try to get it in the show notes. But it's about Jen and Sarah Hart and their six adopted children. Um, so Jen and Sarah Hart were this lesbian couple who decided they wanted to adopt. And so they adopted this a family of um, three black children. And then two years later, they adopted another family of three black children. And they, Jen and Sarah Hart are both white women. They moved to Washington State, one of the whitest states <laughs> in the U.S. And um, it's actually an extremely um, somber story. The, uh, the end result, essentially, is that they were being reported to Child Protective Services. And in the night, um, Jen Hart, it seems, got everyone into the car and ended up uh, driving it off a cliff in um california i believe so everyone has uh in the car died they haven't found um the body of one of the children but everyone else is accounted for um so the podcast is basically looking back at this and what was going on and how no one sort of saw this coming really or even if they did because some people obviously they reported them to cps um they still like nothing happened. You know, the, ch the children stayed with them and it also, so it covers that and it covers kind of like the racist elements happening because one, at least one of the families um, of the, the group of three children had an aunt who wanted to adopt them and the system still let them go to these women. Um, it's, uh, 
it's especially hard listening to it as a uh, liberal uh, white lesbian because this is a pair of liberal white lesbians who um, everyone thought they were doing this great, you know, social justice thing. And um, I mm-hmm. was like, they keep reading like Jen's Facebook posts and they sound so idyllic and she's a really good writer. Um, and I just was like, mm-hmm. gosh, I would have totally bought this. And it's... um it's, I don't know. I, I think it's, it makes you sort of examine yourself and, um, and it's also just a really fascinating, um, tragic story. So again, that is, um, Broken Hearts and, um, you can find it on any podcast app. Excellent. That sounds really good. I remember that story when it first happened. I'm glad somebody's digging into it. Um, so my first, um, podcast suggestion is also kind of a true crime investigative uh, podcast and it's called In the Dark and it's from APM Reports, which is American Public Media. Um, And so In the Dark, they have done two seasons and both are like 10 episode uh, long form investigative pieces. So the first season is about the abduction of Jacob Wetterling, um, which is a huge case in Minnesota. Um, Jacob Wetterling was, I think, in fourth grade uh, when he was abducted 27 years ago when he was uh, an elementary school student. Jacob Wetterling was abducted. And for 27 years, there were just no answers about what happened. Like the case was cold and they could not figure it out. And so initially the first season of this podcast went in trying to figure out like how could a case with this much public interest just go cold like that? Like what happened? Um, And as they were reporting it, there was actually a break in the case. And um, as they were releasing episodes, uh, the the St. Cloud Police Department actually started or moved forward with the case and arrested and charged someone. Um, so then it became like, how did it take you 27 years to solve this crime uh, and what happened? And so they investigated how how law enforcement essentially mishandled the case and how those failures um added to like general anxiety about stranger danger and led to sex offender registries and um they did a whole episode about like police crime solving statistics, which I thought was really fascinating and how those statistics are, um, yeah, not particularly well kept. Um, so that was season one. And then season two was a, um, a story well, was about a man named Curtis Flowers who was tried six times for the same crime. Um, for 27 years, he's maintained that he's innocent, but, um, and he's won in every appeal that he has made, but still this prosecutor in his town continues to try the case over and over again. And so they did a deep dive into that case and why, um, whether he even did it and why this prosecutor continues to think that he did. Um, and as a result of that reporting, they, the case was uh, reopened and some of his appeals have moved forward with the innocence project. So um, that one's really interesting too. So uh, in the dark two like good kind of 10 episode long form investigative pieces that I really liked. Kim, that sounds really good. I'm going to um, add that to my podcast list. Fantastic. Thank you. They are good. Um, totally switching gears. My other recommendation for podcasts is Here to Make Friends, um, put on by Huffington <laughs> Post. So Here to Make Friends is a bachelor-themed podcast. Um, I had tried I okay, okay. I've I've talked on the podcast before about how much I love The Bachelor. I'm not gonna defend myself. Yeah. I think it's great. <laughs> um, I could do all sort of caveats, but I'm not going to. So Bachelor is awesome. Here to Make Friends is like this amazing, just little gem of a podcast where they are insightful, really funny, 
um, feminist women who um, just sort of analyze the episode and chat about it. And so they're very aware of its failings, but they also, you know, love it much like I do. So the two hosts are Claire Fallon, who is um, Huff Poe's, uh, she's a culture writer for them. And she graduated summa cum laude at Princeton, which I was like, oh, this makes sense. <laughs> she she has some really good insights on the podcast. So um, that was great. And then the other host is Emma Gray, who uh, is the executive women's editor at Huffington Post. Um, Emma Gray wrote a book that I'm looking up right now. Oh, yes. It is A Girl's Guide to Joining the Resistance. So um, that's cool. It came out last year. And then the other, hold on. I wanted to have two pairing books for this. One of which is, I didn't come here to make friends. <laughs> Confessions of a reality show villain by Courtney Robertson, who um, was a bachelor <laughs> villainess who uh, won this and everyone was upset about it. And then Bachelor Nation, which Kim read, Inside the World mm, of America's yep. Favorite Guilty Pleasure by Amy Kaufman. I haven't read it yet and I really want to. Excellent. You should. I think you'll like Bachelor Nation. Uh, and you'll find it super interesting. That's fun. Um, so my second pick also just happens to be a podcast from APM, American Public Media. Uh, it is not as cheerful as yours, but I think it's really great anyway. It's called Terrible Thanks for Asking, and it's hosted by Nora McInerney. Um, and this is a podcast just about, like... Uh, it's about the idea that like people ask you like how are you today and most of the time we just say we're fine, uh, but this is about a, so this is a, a podcast about like saying we're not fine and talking about all these like really tough stories and complicated uh, things and how and it's just like really getting kind of uncomfortable about talking honestly about things that make us sad and uncomfortable and the tragedies and human stuff. Um, and so Norm McInerney, she is a, a writer. She has written a, a collection uh, or a book called It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too, which is about um, the loss of her husband to cancer when she was in her late 20s. Um, she also, at the same time she lost her husband, she also in a short period of time lost her father to cancer else also cancer? I don't remember. Um, and uh, she had a miscarriage. And so she had this like string of tragedies and then became this very public widow. Um, and so she writes the the essay collection is all about kind of how you have to sometimes laugh about all of that because also things are terrible, but you have to have a sense of humor about them anyway. Um, and so TTFA, Terrible Thanks for Asking, is a lot like that. It has these really heartbreaking episodes, um, but they're also, they're funny and um I feel like I listen to this when I, when I, like, on days when you just, like, need a good cry, you can kind of reliably think that a terrible thanks for asking episode will, will get you right in the heartstrings. Um, but then it also always feels like it gives you some perspective on other people's lives and the things that are hard for all of us. So, um, I really love it. It's a great podcast, but also makes me cry pretty often. Uh, so that is terrible. Thanks for asking from APM. Oh, that is, that's like a good, like, run in the gamut series of podcasts although we did have two true crime yes. ones that's okay that's a it's a whole it's a whole thing there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there right now it's like it's a thing um all right so we will close out this week's episode as we usually do by talking about the books we are reading uh right now and mine is not interesting so i'm gonna also let you go first this time too <laughs> that is not true because one of the ones you're reading i just read and i loved it so much but um anyway what i'm reading right now is victoria the queen by julia baird um i am uh this season recapping victoria for vulture so i'm trying to get as much background Ooh. info yeah i know it's very exciting 
Um, I'm trying to get as much background info as possible on her and, you know, the actuality. I would call Victoria, um, the show, sort of reality adjacent. Like they try really hard. (laughs) They sometimes put in some stuff. They just had a whole plot about the Chartists and then – there's an exciting, well, sad sort of thing coming up this week. Uh, I guess it'll already have aired. So this week they're talking about um, the cholera epidemic that happened in uh, in England in sort of the mid 1800s. And so, which is legit. And they have like the guy who discovered the source, Dr. Jon Snow. And um, it's really interesting. But anyway, so I'm looking forward to sort of figuring out more of like what is real and what did they totally make up for the show um, through this book, Victoria the Queen. It's a great biography. I'm glad you're reading it. Um, so for nonfiction, I am reading the same book that I talked about on the last podcast, American Prison, A Reporter's Dr- Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment by Shane Bauer, which is a look at um, for-profit prisons in the United States. And so he goes undercover at a prison uh, as a guard. He gets hired as a guard and then um, writes about what it is like there. Um, and so I'm actually in the middle of it now as I had talked about like starting it I think last time um and it's super good he's doing a really interesting um connecting for-profit prisons with sort of a history of incarceration and race and slavery and kind of how those things have evolved together that I think is super interesting um the parts where he's talking about being undercover in the prison are very tense because he it's like feels like constantly like he might be discovered and so like reading that it's he's doing a really good job with the book so I think it's really interesting um but it's not a, a new title or anything like that um but the book I'm super obsessed with is not nonfiction, and I just feel like I have to mention it because it's so great uh and that is the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton um which is a kind of Agatha Christie meets Quantum Leap. Um, That was not my read-alike. I read that somewhere online um, about a guy who has to relive the same day over and over again trying to solve a murder. And it is just so delightful and weird and creepy, creepy, creepy. And I love it. And I feel like you told me that this was a good one, didn't you? I love it so much. It's so good. Oh my gosh. Um, I do want to point yeah. out that a friend of the podcast, Jenny, um, talked about how there is, in fact, some um, extreme – in one of the characters, there's some, like, fat shaming happening uh, that's really oh, yeah. distasteful mm-hmm. and um, unfortunate, but um, – you know, I don't know. I just feel like that needs to be addressed. But I did like overall in terms of the intricacy of the plot and just, oh my gosh, it's so, there were so many twists and I love twists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. I'm listening to the audiobook and honestly, like there's a twist like every 15 minutes. It's crazy. It's so good. So anyway, American Prison by Shane Bauer, nonfiction, really good in the middle of it. Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton is not nonfiction, but it's really good anyway, and I'm going to recommend it. So uh, that is new books, and that is, or excuse me, that's what we're reading now, and that brings us to the end of the podcast. Yes, uh, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and you can find Kim at Kim the Dork. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That that helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can also subscribe so you can get our new episodes the very minute that they come out. Or you could subscribe to one of the nonfiction adjacent podcasts we also talked about this week. And so with that, I am Kim Yukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.